0: Good morning, church. It's uh, really... An honor that I'm able to be here today with you uh, to present God's word, and um, maybe it's not—it's coming to the point that maybe we don't necessarily need to introduce myself every time, but just for a good time's sake, my name is Luke Wagner. Um, I'm the college and career director here at the church. Um, obviously, given the amount of hair I have in my head, I am not Pastor Mike. So, um, if you were here expecting him, I'm sorry, um, but I am really glad, and I am honored, and I'm privileged that I'm able to present to you from God's word, all that God has been teaching me and showing me about the reality of temptation. And to borrow a phrase, and maybe we work it, work it a little bit from a good friend of mine who says, uh, says this, uh, I have thought a lot of thoughts that I have never thought before. And what I mean by that is that in my studying of temptation, God has been bringing so much to light about it that I have never really considered before. And that's what I hope to share with you uh, today. So, uh, in this passage that we're going to read, which is, uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, and in this passage, we're going to see that Paul is revealing to us that there are four truths about temptation that, when we understand, will give us a new perspective and a new hope for when we face the everyday temptation in our lives. So, before we get into those four, let me read first for you the passage we'll be in this morning. Again, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. And it says this, "'For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, "'that our fathers were all under the cloud "'and all passed through the sea, "'and all were baptized into Moses "'in the cloud and in the sea, "'and all ate the same spiritual food, "'and all drank the same spiritual drink. "'For they drank from the spiritual rock "'that followed them, and the rock was Christ. "'Nevertheless, with most of them "'God was not pleased.'" But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray before we jump into our first point this morning. Dear Lord, we just read your word, God. And for me personally, there's so much about temptation that I've been learning these past few weeks studying it, Lord. And Lord, I think there's very important spiritual truths that we need to learn about temptation with this passage, Lord. But Lord, ultimately, I pray that you speak through me in a way that can just articulate these uh, things that the congregation and us as the church need to hear. Lord, I pray that you remove um, me from the equation and you just speak through me. And God, as we look at this idea of temptation, I pray that we can be open and honest with ourselves. Lord, I pray that we don't try to make excuses and think that we don't struggle with these things, that we don't need these truths and these concepts, Lord, but that we can be honest with ourselves and know that we need you. And Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. So, have you guys ever heard of this quote? Those who do not learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Uh, we, even if you haven't learned or heard of this quote before, the context and the subtext of what it's uh, trying to say is very clear to us, right? It's saying, you need to learn from your past mistakes so that you don't do them again, even in the present or in the future. You learn from what you've done and you learn from it to not do it again. Now, I personally, in my life, am in the middle of the consideration of this quote, as you can see from this picture, okay? So, uh, um, uh, as you can see in this picture, I made a mistake. Uh, I Uh, I thought I was pretty cool, but really I'm just here uh, in this big old splint, Um, and this happened because I made a mistake. The mistake was, and it's unfortunate that Jake isn't here this morning, because I was skateboarding with Jake Laudermilk, and I was, yes, I know, skateboarding, and my mistake was thinking that my 27-year-old body would be able to withstand the pain and the difficulty of skateboarding. (laughs) So, and I didn't even break my arm doing anything particularly interesting. Like, I wasn't doing a gnarly 360 uh, Kick flip off of like a 10-foot gap or whatever, what the kids say, I don't know, I, not even close, right? I, instead, I was just going up a slight three-inch hill, rolling back, and as I was rolling back, all my weight was on the backside of me, so when I rolled out, I fell like this, and wouldn't you know, when you put your arm out like this, and you land, and all the pressure goes right onto your palm, it goes up your arm and connects right here to the inside of your elbow, and I fractured my elbow um, because I thought I was going to be pretty cool. But in fact, I was not. So I made this mistake, and now I've learned a few things from this mistake looking back on it. Number one, I am not nearly as cool as I thought I think I am. Uh, n- in no way am I <laughs> am I as cool. And in fact, it's I think it's funny in this picture that I'm like putting on this brave face and whatever, you know, I'm flexing. But I mean, it's all betrayed by the fact that no, Luke, you're not very cool. You broke your arm, not even doing anything very cool on your skateboard. So I'm learning from that. I'm learning from that mistake. I'm also learning um, that I'm not very good at skate skateboarding, right? Uh, It was just a simple three-inch little dip down onto the ground and I totally biffed it. And the last thing that I'm learning uh, from this mistake is that I uh, probably, uh, and this is like the biggest thing I'm learning from the mistake, is that maybe I shouldn't do it again. I mean, because to this point, I still haven't stepped foot on the skateboard again. I broke my arm, I don't know, maybe like three months ago now, and since then, I've never stepped foot on the skateboard again. And um, So I'm learning from this mistake, and I'm possibly learning from it by saying, you know what, maybe I won't skateboard anymore, maybe it's not for me, but in reality, Uh, and I said this first, but Lauren, you're here now to hear it, I probably will step foot back on a skateboard again. It's probably an inevitability. It will happen. But at the very least, I can learn from my mistake and try not to break my bones again, right? I can at least know that I need to take it easy a little bit more. I need to not try to show off so much and just play it cool and just be safer, right? So I'm learning from a mistake in that area. See, Paul is also using the same concept of learning from your past so that you don't make the same mistakes today. And he's doing that so that he can show us this first truth about temptation. And this first truth is this, that our relationship with God does not exempt us from temptation. Now, I say that, and you're like, yeah duh. (laughs) Um, I know that to be true. In fact, I know that to be true because of my own circumstances, right? Because you came here this morning and you can be saying, yeah, I have a relationship with God, but even getting here, I was tempted. There was somebody sitting in the left lane on the highway and he wouldn't just move over, right? So I was tempted to just wail on my horn, roll around him and cut him off, right? Or maybe you woke up this morning and the kids or your husband uh, notice I didn't say wise. <laughs> We're dragging their feet. And they and they wouldn't get going, and it took everything in you to not be tempted to just fly off the handle at them, right? So we know this truth to be true of our lives: that even though we have a relationship with God, it does not exempt us from temptation. But for uh, but Paul is still making this point very clear in this passage. And we'll see that when we really consider the ramifications of this common and understandable truth, we'll see that it leaves us asking a question that the following three truths will answer. But before we get to that question, let me show you what Paul is doing by telling us to look back and learn from the example of Israel. So, Specifically, in the first four verses, Paul is calling us to learn from the mistakes of Israel made in their history. And specifically, he's calling us back to remember the 40 years of Israel's history when they were in the wandering around in the wilderness after God uh, uh, was able to liberate them from Egypt. Right? We know that story. We know that God uh, provided for them in that he, they, he provided that, uh, the liberation from Egypt. And then he points out four specific ways specific ways after that happened that God was providing for them and blessed them. And in doing so, he is reminding us that we too receive those same provisions and those same blessings from God. So first, he points out for us that God provides direction. We see in those first four verses that he's uh, giving us this example of how God directed Israel in the wilderness. We read and we see that he's referencing to the fact that Israel was directed by God, not through some kind of handwritten note written, scribbled on a napkin, right? That kind of has like a few landmarks, kind of hard to understand, nor did God give them direction by saying, uh, giving them a list of really weird directions that you might hear from like your uncle or something when he says like, oh yeah, just go three miles down the road at the hay, st- hay bales, just turn right. You'll find follow all that all the way down. There'll be a stone that looks like a little bit of a turtle when you really squint at it, right? But then follow the cloud in the sky that looks a little bit, you know, like a mermaid. And then you want to follow the road down a little bit more, you'll hit a windy's turn or left, and you'll know it when you see it, right? That's not the way that God provides direction in our life. And what Paul is pulling out for us is that God, for Israel, was directing them physically with them. He's drawing out this idea that Israel was being directed by God by a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. God was going ahead of Israel in a very physical way. He was providing direction for them that they could see and understand. Now, for us today, uh, we obviously are not being directed by a pillar of smoke of day and a pillar of of fire by night. Admittedly, that would be pretty awesome, (laughs) although there would probably be a lot of burned cities and all sorts of things going around, Uh, but it would be awesome. But unfortunately, that's not how God directs us. The way that God directs us today is that he gives us his word. He gives us his Holy Spirit that dwells in us, and those things help direct us and understand where God wants us to go. So God provides direction for Israel and he wants us to know that he provides the direction for us in our lives as well. Second, we see that God provides protection. And the example that Paul is bringing up for Israel is that God protected Israel. After he was leading them away from Egypt by the pillar of smoke by day and fire by night, they come to the banks of the Red Sea. And what you see from the story is that Pharaoh realizes his mistake by letting the Israelites go. And he says, no, I need to have, that's a lot of free labor that I just let go. I need to bring them back and put them back in slavery. So he sends his army after Israel. So Israel finds themselves at the banks of the Red Sea. They look over the shoulder. They can see that the army is coming and bearing down on them. And they cry out to God, God, protect us. We need help. And what does God do? Well, we know that he opens the sea and allows them safe passage through the sea. He provided them with protection. And for us today, we can also see that God provides us with protection. If we just take a moment and consider uh, that there is probably many areas in our lives that we could see God's hand in our lives, and God was protecting us either physically, emotionally, or spiritually. We can pinpoint those areas in our lives where God was showing us protection and bringing us through something that was really difficult and protecting us from it. Then finally, Paul is drawing out that God provides for physical needs as well. I mean, we know the story after they crossed the Red Sea and they were in the wilderness. They said, okay, great, you've helped us, you've protected us, but now we're just in this wilderness wandering around, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, there's 600,000 plus of us. How are we supposed to fend for ourselves? How are we supposed to find the food to sustain our life? And God hears that and he says, okay, you know what, you're hungry, you're thirsty, I will provide it for you. And Paul in those first four verses references the manna from heaven, right? And one of the uh, things that one of my good friends often uh, reminds me of is that manna literally means, what is that? Right? So God was saying, hey, you know, God is showing them that literally he's providing for them in such a miraculous way that they can't even really understand what's going on but God is providing for the physical needs. He also provides for their physical need of thirst, right? And Paul is referencing uh, the time where Moses hits the rock and water comes pouring out of it. And that's only one instant in which God provided them with water. I think what Paul is really trying to say is that throughout the 40 years that they spent in the wilderness, God was consistently providing for Israel's needs. And for us today, I think we, it doesn't take much to consider how God helps us with our physical needs. I mean, even as an American, even as Americans, we take just a half a second and we wouldn't even, we just scratch the surface on the way that God provides for us. I mean, he provides the most simple of things, right? He provides the food that we eat, the water we drink, but he also provides the works, the work that we have, the house that we live in, the family that we enjoy, the church that we come to. He provides for these physical needs, just as he did for the Israelites. And then finally, he says that God provides for their spiritual needs. Now, what's really interesting about Paul's writing here when he's referencing Israel in these first four uh, verses is that he's using some very interesting New Testament language. I mean, you see that he's talking in reference about baptism and communion and talking about the elements of the, of the bread, the wine, and the water, right? We see him making reference to these things. And that's not because uh, this is the way that Israel would have understood it. But he is using this language so that we, on this side of the cross, New Testament believers, can understand that God was relating and uh, was meeting the spiritual needs of Israel in the same way that he does for us. See, let me explain really quickly is that when he says that they were baptized unto Moses, what he's saying is that um, in the same way that we are baptized into the family of God, it's our public pro- uh, proclamation that we, are become, we have decided we are going to become a part of God's uh, family and he has accepted us. That's what he's saying that uh, was offered to Israel, that they were baptized into Moses and thus they were being a part of God's family. And then there's a picture of communion. You know, We take communion uh, here at church to remember the sacrifice that Christ made, to remember his grace, his mercy, and the fact that he provides for us spiritually and then he provides for us for, of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. So in the same way, Israel was looking forward to that eventuality and Christ sa- is the reason that they were saved is the same reason that we were saved. They were simply just looking forward to Christ's sacrifice as we look back. So in all of these areas, Paul is reminding us that we are not just to look at this example of Israel and look at them and say, oh, you know, these Israel-, Israel is their own entity. They made mistakes. What can we learn from it? No, he's trying to draw a connection between us and them. He's trying to do this so that we can have an understanding that uh, have an understanding of what he says next in verse five. In verse five, he says that uh, they nevertheless failed; they nevertheless were not pleasing to God's eyes, and many of them fell. And this leads us to the conclusion uh, and the example that no matter how close we are to God, we will still be tempted. Israel was experiencing these provisions and these blessings, and they could see God working in their lives, literally, physically, right in front of their eyes every single day when they got up to collect their manna and to be led by that pillar of smoke and fire. They saw it in their lives, yet they still were tempted And they still sinned. See, Paul is referencing here uh, specifically about the end of the narrative that we typically hear about when we talk about the uh, journey of Israel from captivity. We know that they crossed the sea, right? And that God was directing them to a specific place. And that place was the promised land. Now, God directed him there because he had promised them that once he doesn't just gonna free them from slavery, but he's gonna establish them as his nation and give them a land that was filled with milk and honey and provisions for them. And all that Israel had to do was follow him and trust him. And then eventually God leads them right to the entry door, the front door. Israel is literally sitting on the welcome mat to the promised land. And God says, all you need to do is take that last step in. And what do we know about the story? And we know that instead of taking that step in, Israel decides that no, we're not gonna trust you anymore, God. We don't trust that you have our best best interests in mind. If we go into the promised land, we will be destroyed by the giants and all of the uh, evil and all of the scary things that we saw. We don't think you know what you're doing. So they were tempted and they sinned against God by turning their back on God. And this reveals to us that no matter how close we are to God, we are still going to be tempted. Now, we see this, and we say, okay, that makes sense. And Paul is just kind of reiterating things that we kind of already know about. But really, when we think about it, this very simple concept can lead us to a very difficult question. And this is the question that I specifically want to spend the rest of our time this morning trying to answer. Because we know that we have a relationship with God, and we know that we are still tempted even though we have it, but then the question becomes, but why? Why are we still tempted to do evil even though we know it's wrong, even though we know it's not pleasing to God, and even though we ourselves don't want to do it? Why do we still do it? Because I think we all can relate to that question because I think every single person in this room can identify at least one temptation in your life that is way more, has way more of a grasp in your life than any other temptation. It seems to be the temptation that is always after you. It's always trying to find you. It's always on your mind. Day in and day out, you're trying to fight this battle against this temptation. And when you're in the midst of experiencing temptation or you've given in and you're on the other side and there's shame and there's guilt, you cry out to God and we say, God, why? Why am I still tempted? I do not want to do it anymore. I know it's drawing me away from you. God, I want to be close to you. Why am I still being tempted? And see, this, is, this question is the same question that even Paul himself has, and he shares with us. See, in Romans 7 15, he says this For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So even Paul himself is saying, Yes, I understand that I am close to God. I understand that I have a relationship with Him, and yet I still. Do what I don't want to do, even though I hate it. So Paul is relating to us in that question as well. And for me specifically, I know this to be true. Because I deal with this in my own life. Let me give you an example of how I really dealt with this in my teenage years. See, when I was a teenager, I had a really big addiction to lust. And I know uh, and I, and that the addiction to lust manifested itself in the viewing of pornography. And in doing those actions, and in giving over to the t- temptation of viewing pornography, there is countless amount of times that I can tell you that I was on the floor in the fetal position after I had given in and saying and crying out to God, God, why did this happen to me again? God, why? I know I don't want to do it. I, I, feel, I know it makes me feel terrible. I know that it is drawing me away from you. God, why is this skull going on in my life? Take it from me. Please, God, can't you just remove the temptation from my life? And maybe that's how you feel about the temptations that you have in your life. In the same way that I, I had a desperate need to answer this question. I needed to know why I was still being tempted despite the fact that I knew I shouldn't, and that I had all these reasons to see that God was with me. See, but to answer this question, we must understand the remaining three truths about temptation that Paul writes about. And that first truth about, and that next, second truth about temptation is that temptation is not our primary enemy. See, we often look at temptation as our primary enemy. However, in verse Verse 6, Paul identifies our true enemy. He says this, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So what he's saying to us is that he's not saying that these things uh, took place as examples for us that we might not be tempted as they did. He is saying, no, this example is written to us so that we might not desire evil as they did. See, evil is our primary enemy, not temptation. It is from uh, our evil desires that temptation comes. Paul illustrates this truth by continuing his history lesson of Israel in the following verses from 7 to 10. And I don't want to spend too much time really getting into the details of each one of these examples, but just really quickly, we see that he gives us a few examples of how Israel allowed their desires to tempt them into sin. First of all, he says that Israel uh, was tempted into uh, to sin because of their desire to uh, worship God the way that they wanted to worship Him. He's referencing um, there that he, they, the story about when they, when Moses went to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. That Israel was like, "Oh man, God is where is God? It's taking so long. God must be gone. We need to make ourselves." our own God, a God in our image, a God that would do what we want him to do. And they were tempted to sin because of their evil desire to, to decide that they knew what God, who God should be more than God said he was. We also see that they were tempted, uh, to, uh, f- they were tempted to sin because of the desire to fulfill their own sexual immorality. You know, in that story, we, uh, in that reference, in those verses that Paul is bringing up, he's referencing the fact that they had a desire to fulfill their sexual desires, and in doing so, they went over, they went to other nations, they did all sorts of profane and terrible things um, with the other nations sexually, and it caused a great amount of pain and destruction in their lives. We also see that he's referencing that they had a sin, they, had, uh, they, they were tempted to sin because of their desire to think that they were better than God. So he's referencing the idea that Israel tempted God. And what that means is that Israel was trying to push God as far as he would go before he would push back. And in essence, they're saying, I'm going to push God and try to make him into who I want him to be. I'm going to push God and try to think and say, and in doing so, I'm pushing him to, because I think I know what is best. And then he also references the idea that they grumbled and they were tempted to sin because they had a desperate desire, evil desire, to prove and say that they knew better than God. And in grumbling, in their grumblings, what they were, in their complaining to God, they were not just trying to ask God questions about their circumstance. Instead, they were crying out and saying, God, you're doing it wrong. I need to take the reins. I know better than you. Now, these are the examples that Paul illustrates, but in all of these examples, we understand that temptation was not the core issue in their lives. See, the core issue was Israel's evil desire to place themselves above God. In all of these examples that Paul writes for us to remember from Israel's mistakes, he's writing, remember that they had a desire to place themselves above God, and that is what caused them to temptation. See, this evil desire and and their evil desires did not come from temptation, it came from within. It came from their hearts. Jesus himself identifies the origin and the place in which temptation comes. Uh, And he says this in Mark 7, 21 to 23. He says, from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, idolatry, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And we see these words from Jesus, and we say, wow, he's basically just reciting all the things that Israel did. Right? And then he's saying, but these things did not come from their external circumstances. They were not tempted to do these things and make these mistakes because the world around them was pressuring them to do them. What he is saying is that, no, temptation came out of their own hearts, out of their evil desires. See, in our lives, we often view temptation as the problem, right? But temptation is, not, is, temptation is our sinful hearts creating opportunity for us to fulfill our evil desires. So we often view temptation as the problem to overcome. And we think that if we can only uh, keep ourselves from it, then that would, uh, be able to, that would be able to help us be able to overcome temptation. So what we do is we say, and we set up barriers in our lives, and we say, you know, if only I don't go on the computer at this certain time of the day, then that means that temptation won't take hold of me. Or if I just separate myself from the friend group that causes me to gossip or cheat or lie or be lazy at work, then if I just separate myself from them, then I won't be tempted to do those things anymore. Or we say, if I just make my life so busy that temptation has no opportunity to arrive in my life, then that will keep me from temptation. And we say these things and we say, oh, yeah, that must work. And maybe it works for a little while, but eventually temptation finds its way back into our lives. Temptation is like the cracks in your basement, right? It's like the water coming through the cracks in the basement. No matter how hard you try, you mop it up, you remove it, you throw it out, it will return, right? Water will find its way through those cracks, just as temptation will find its way through the protections that we are trying to set for ourselves, Temptation will find a way. And until we identify that there's a bigger issue, until we realize that the basement floods not because of the fact that water just miraculously appears, it arrives because there's cracks in their foundation. And we need to understand that in order to fully understand how we are going to overcome temptation. See, temptation is only the symptom of the bigger issue. And that bigger issue is our evil desires. Our evil desire, and temptation is not what causes us to sin, as we said. We do not sin because of outside forces. No, instead we sin because of our evil desires. We sin because we want to sin. It is innate in us to want to rebel. It is innate in our hearts, our evil desires to sin. We sin because we want to sin. Jeremiah says in his writing Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, our hearts are deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? What he's saying is that we don't even understand the fathoms in which how deep our evil desires go. We cannot understand how deceitful and evil our hearts are. James kind of frames this idea in a similar way, where he says in James 1, 14, he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James makes it clear that it is our desire, our desires bring forth temptation, not the other way around. And again, I wanna stress this again, that it's not the external, tempta- external pressures that tempt us. It is actually our desires that are seeking those opportunities that, for us to sin. It comes from within. So we ask the question, right? We ask, so why are we continuously be tempted even though we are believers? Well, it is because we are continually tempted because we are, not fighting, because we are fighting the symptom, not the, 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 the disease. As I said, we can often try to put up all sorts of barriers. We try to put barriers up for ourselves so that we don't become tempted, but what we, in doing so, we're only fighting the symptom and not the root cause. But then we, we ask the question then, okay, it's, it's not out external pressure, it's coming from our evil desires in our hearts, so then can we just take all the effort we have to try to avoid temptation and then move it into trying to change our hearts? Is that possible, is that what God is calling us to do? Well, the resounding question of that question is, what are we to do and can we change our heart is a resounding no. No, we are not strong enough in our own ability to be able to change our hearts. Remember what Jeremiah said, right? He says that our hearts are deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? If we can't even understand the fathoms in which how deep our desires go, how deep our evil desires go, how would we ever have hope to be able to change them? Now, to answer this question, we look to our third truth about temptation, and that is um, temptation must be given over to God. See, we know that in ourselves, we would be lost to temptation, succumbing to every one of our evil desires. But Paul does not leave us in this hopeless state. You know, we, we think, okay, well, we can't change our desires at all, so what reason is there to do anything if nothing can be done about it? But Paul doesn't want us to just Uh, take this heed and say, oh, it's all is lost. No, he offers hope. So he reveals in verse 13, he says this, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. See, we are not strong enough to overcome overcome temptation that our evil desires create in us. But God is promising us that if we look to him, he will provide us with a way of escape now as i sometimes when you read scripture there's usually some things that can really stick out to you and as i was reading this verse and really trying to understand what he's saying there's three words that paul includes that really that really stuck out to me and there're really three awesome words that we need to hold on to and those three words are these that god is faithful Do we believe that, church? That God is faithful, and and because of that, because Paul is bringing that to light, he's saying God is faithful so that when we are tempted and we're in the darkest times of our lives, when we are in the darkest shade, that temptation is overshadowing us in our lives, that God is faithful, and he promises to be there to help us and to provide for us a way of escape. It means that when we are not strong enough to resist temptation and our own defenses that we have built up in our lives inevitably crumble to the ground, that He is faithful and that He is there offering us a way of escape. And it also means that when we have succumbed to temptation for the thousandth time, and we're left wondering where God is. And we cry out to him and we say, God, where are you? That he is faithful and that he is there with you. No matter if it's your thousandth time or your first time succumbing to that temptation, God is faithful and he is with us. That's amazing. That's powerful. That's beautiful. That's a, that's a, a love that we do not deserve. But yet God is saying through Paul that this is what he promises He promises us that he will help us overcome temptation and by extent help us in our evil desires. This is an awesome truth that we need to hold on to, but it gets better than that. God is doing so much more in our lives when we turn to him to help us overcome our temptation. And this leads us to our final point. Temptation is used by God to sanctify us. See, We can look to God for help, and he is faithful to help us. But God is going to use that in our lives to grow us. And you look at this word sanctification, you go, okay, that's a little bit of a daunting word. You know, we started with an easy point up front, now we're going to be talking about this large theological concept of sanctification. And I'm not going to go off on another 30 minutes to explain the details of it, I promise, okay? But what I think what we need to understand about uh, sanctification is simply this, that sanctification is the process in which God develops us into being more like Christ. So in that statement that God uses temptation to sanctify us, we see that God is faithful to provide us with a way of escape. But it does not necessarily mean that that way of escape is going to be the way of escape we would have wanted or expected or hoped for, right? See, in the previous, past, in the previous verse, in verse 13, I read it to you, and I left out the very last phrase for a purpose. Because the very last phrase of verse 13 is often the one that, uh, that we tend to omit. Let me read it again for you one more time, uh, where he says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. And we stop there, and we say, great, that's what we need to do. We need to just look to God, and he will provide the way of escape. That's what he's going to do. But then he goes on in the last phrase, and he says, that you may endure it. And that it that he's talking about is the temptation. So in our minds, we might think when I call out to God and I ask him to pro- provide for me a way of escape, what he's going to do is that he's just going to open up the exit door that's standing right here next to us and all we have to do is sidestep out of it. That all we have to do is ask him that for uh, him to take away the temptation and then he will open up the next opportunity for us to leave it, that he'll just take it away from us. But Paul is saying that the way of escape that God will provide for us is not the way that we would hope or expect but in most cases, it will be by going through the temptation, by experiencing the temptation instead of just trying to skirt around it. But why is this? Why does God have us go through the temptation? Why doesn't he just uh, pull us out of the temptation immediately when we ask him? And it's because that God is not just interested in distracting us from our evil desires. He wants to change them. See in Ephesians 4:22 to 24, we uh, read this: But put off your old self, which belongs to uh, put, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and do not put and to put on your new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Church, this is sanctification. See, temptation reveals the areas of our lives that still belong to our old way of life. When we are tempted, it's not simply as should be a surprise to us. We go, oh, this temptation is coming from external sources. No, what temptation is revealing is that we are tempted because we have evil desires. And when we're tempted, we can identify that there is still something in our lives that belongs to the old way of life, to belongs to the way that we lived before we knew Christ. And God is using that temptation to draw those things out of us. I mean, so often we don't want to believe that we have problems. We don't want to believe that we have evil desires. But man, if when we're tempted, that's God saying, no, you actually do have problems. And it's not just the temptation that's the issue. There's a deeper core issue that is being revealed here because you're being tempted. And we need to understand this because when we understand this, it gives us a new perspective of temptation. It gives us this perspective that God has a purpose for our temptation, that when we come to temptation and we're faced with it, we are often thinking, oh, this is terrible. This is, this is, uh, this is only evil. This will only end in disaster. But with this understanding and this truth that God is using to f- sanctify us, we realize that he's actually using it for a purpose and that we can have hope that this is being used by God for good. He's calling us then to not just identify that we have problems, but he's also calling us to identify those problems, those evil desires, and lift them up to him. See, he wants us to know these things so that in Ephesians 4.22, we can identify and put off what is evil, but then we can allow God to change our evil desires to create in us a new being to create in us new desires that will take place that will cover the old desires that will take place of our old desires and in doing so he is creating us to be more like Christ and we need to be willing to truly give these things over to God see i think oftentimes we come to God and we say, God, I know that I should be giving these things. I know that I should be looking for you for the way of escape. And what we're asking for is just a quick fix. We're saying, God, you say that you're gonna help me. Help me really quickly here so I don't have to worry about this temptation in this moment. But God says, no, if you're gonna come to me and you're gonna be seeking escape from me, you have to be coming with, the, uh, with that old self, with that evil desire, bloody in our hands, lifting it up to him and saying, God, take this from my life. I want it no more. And then be willing to experience the difficulty of what God has in store for us in order to change that desire. Because when God says that he's going to provide a way of escape, that, that he will, we will be able to endure it, what he means is that we're going to be going through struggle, we're going to be going through pain, we're going to go through very uncomfortable and maybe even embarrassing situations before God completely changes our heart. He uses those things to change our evil desires. But we need be, to be willing to just give it up to him and trust that he will change it in us. See, this morning we have a lot of maybe old and new concepts of temptation that maybe we already knew. But for me, reading this passage and understanding it really brought to light this reality that if we understand some of these concepts of truth, it will really help us when we are faced with temptation in our lives. We won't approach temptation as being this terrible, awful thing, but we can actually look at it as being, oh, God is behind this. God is behind everything. He's even behind the temptation that is trying to cause me to sin. He is working even in those moments. And in doing so, he's providing us and he is faithful. He is showing us his faithfulness. He is promising us that we can overcome temptation with his help if we just come to him and offer up our evil desires and allow him to change it. So I hope this morning that uh, you will at least leave with a renewed uh, perspective of temptation See, if we understand these truths about temptation, it will result in us having a proper perspective of it. Um, that, and because of these, uh, these things, we can stand firm against temptation stronger now that we have this proper perspective. We can see God in our temptation. And we realize that we need to give it over to God and allow him to use it to draw us closer to him.